Welcome to Cancel Culture, the business of law podcast brought to you by Byfield. Welcome back to Council Culture, the business of law podcast. Uh, I'm joined by Michael this week. Hello, Michael. How are you? Hi, Mike. I'm fine. Good to be back on the podcast. Yeah, it's been a very busy few weeks for us at Byfield, so uh, it's good to have some time to do it today. Um, so, yeah, let's let's kick off. Uh, first of all, with probably the biggest story, well, it's still ongoing, uh, but this week, uh, that the SRA has... Uh, intervene in the Axiom Inns uh, situation. They've closed the firm this week. Um, and the firm, I think, appointed, well, provided a notice to appoint administrators last week. And um, as we know, um, the Met Police has been notified of issues there. Um, I don't think because the Met is involved, I don't think we can say much more than that. But um, did you have any thoughts you wanted to, to share on that briefly? Sure. Um I think it's, it's. I mean, it manages to be both fascinating and kind of banal at the same time, on the face of it at the moment. Um, but it's just extraordinary how that amount of money could go missing from, from a firm of that size. If we're talking about, you know, um, a firm with billions of dollars of revenue, it, I mean, I'm not saying that it should ever happen, but that sort of amount would be a tiny fraction, but both firms would have much better controls. I suppose it reveals a lack of controls. And, you know, you can have the best regulatory framework in the world, but if people don't comply with it, um, if people don't just ignore it, then, um, you know, it's it, you, the framework is one thing, the controls are another. And were the controls strong enough? Obviously not. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the position of the SRA evolves on this over coming months. Um, and... You know what the what what the what the authorities now for now that the police um, are involved. See what happens. I think there's a lot of unanswered questions that will come out over time. Just feel really bad for the people who um, have lost their jobs, yeah. um, particularly the support staff who's you know stuck through stuck with you know whether it's in Plexus or um, or Legacy Axiom. Um, have been through a huge amount of upheaval and disruption, uh, thought maybe they found a, a good home and, and now find themselves, um, you know, some cases without jobs and um, nowhere to go. So um, that plus, you know, the clients, any of the clients who, who, who've lost money, um, you know, hopefully they can recover some or all of it from the, um, from, from, from the SRA's fund, but... That's going to take time. So yeah. between yeah. between the people who lost their jobs and and the clients who lost money, I just feel feel bad for them in this situation. And hopefully they'll get the answers that they need in due course. Definitely. And and if anyone wants to read a bit more about it, um, please feel free to go uh, on the Global Legal Post. Uh, ben Rigby wrote a really nice uh, kind of informative piece about this um, earlier this week. Uh, and there's lots of people from Axiom Inns who have been posting as well on LinkedIn to kind of look for different jobs. So, um, yeah, I, I think the whole community is going to try to kind of help out, hopefully. Uh, yeah, next up. So that was a story in The Times today uh, by Catherine Baxi. Um, the the Bar Standards Board is uh, has issued some new uh, social media guidelines for, for barristers, uh, where basically they've received uh, 102 reports involving 41 barristers over the last year uh, with concerns around their kind of behavior on social media. 
And uh, the officials at the BSB have said that um, the concern around regulating that, if that's the right word to put it, will be around the manner in which the barristers express themselves rather than the substance of what they're saying. Um, and um, in determining whether some posts are not quite right, uh, they'll look at kind of how normal people and, and re- like what's the reasonable response you should have, um, which I think is an interesting way to, to look at this because everyone's different. So um, any thoughts on that, Michael? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting piece that Catherine wrote. Um, I did have a look at these a few weeks ago, and I think there's a very differing opinions. Um, I think the key thing is that there is a you know, BSB is saying that barristers have to be held to a higher standard than a member of the general public yeah. because uh, of their professional duty not to diminish trust and confidence the public places them in, uh, in them and their profession. Um, so how much higher is that bar? Yeah. Um, is the uh, BSB making itself a sort of the arbiter of, of this? We have to, you know, Solicitors love LinkedIn. Barristers love Twitter. I yeah, mean, they do. Not not across the board, but you know anybody who's sorry X, not Twitter, but you know whatever. Um, that seems to suit that combative advocacy kind of style. There yeah. are some very high profile barristers with big followings on um, uh, on on Twitter, and you know they quite often fight a lot. But these, you know, this this is unsurprising given the profession so I think these rules are probably good probably necessary in certain respects I don't think it's going to have a chilling effect on free speech it's just saying that if you are a barrister you are held to a somewhat higher um, standard because of your professional duties and you need to consider that in the way you interact with social media I don't think that is I don't think you have to be a you're not anti-free speech to think that's reasonable. Um, it could be chilling if it were to be taken too far, but yeah. nobody is talking about legislating. Um, and it's just being a little bit more careful and thinking about the manner in which you're posting. So don't be offensive, discriminatory, harassing, threatening, bullying, indecent, obscene, or menace people. Um, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think as rules for happy living, um, yeah, not doing that on certain, not doing any of those things on social media is probably a good thing for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm you know. I think the guidelines they've issued so far are a bit kind of vague in a way. Uh, and I'm just thinking, you know, if you've got a problem with someone on social media, why don't you just report the the tweet or the personal, you know, like just there's there's different ways to do it. And I'm like, why why wouldn't that work? Uh, so it's. I mean, it's. I can see it from both sides. It, I think it it warrants that kind of intervention from the regulator. But I'm just like, you know, realistically, what do they risk anyway? Um, you know, I'm not certain. I'm not. Cer- <laughs> I'm not certain that we can outsource the. Uh, a fun- I'm not sure that some of the social plat- media platforms have an effective reporting. Oh, they and don't. Moderation uh, process anymore. So I do think that um, having a degree of having so having a framework. And putting some guardrails is is helpful, but you don't want to create a situation where somebody unpopular, somebody who you know, who, somebody unpopular expresses an, a, a barrister expresses an unpopular opinion, and then gets reported by yeah. you know two thousand people. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. For expressing something which is actually perfectly reasonable, but maybe politically against the grain. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. But I do think, as a start, some guardrails are necessary. Yeah. Next up, uh, so that was a case that was uh, closed uh, in June, in fact. Uh, so the Oliver Bretherton case, uh, he was a director at Galling, um, and he was struck off in June by the Solicitor's Disciplinary t- Tribunal. Uh, and so they've published their findings last Friday. Uh, so just to recap, um, he was facing 77 allegations of sexual misconduct, which were not criminal, uh, and as a, yeah, as a result, the, the tribunal struck him off uh, because they felt that um, there was a, a, an abuse of kind of power in a way, and also um, because there was a clear theme of uh, misogyny. I think they said in their findings, uh, which is uh, really really interesting. I mean, um, if you want to read more of the details of this case, uh, John Hyde at the Law Society Gazette published about it. Uh, I think it was on Monday. Um, and I mean, it's quite grim. Um, so I'm not going to repeat that here, but, um, yeah, uh, I mean, Michael, any thoughts on kind of, well, maybe not the case itself, but kind of, um, how, how do you handle the, this type of issue when you're in a firm? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you would know, <laughs> um, but you know, that, cause those are really complicated cases. Thanks for triggering my PTSD. Uh, um, no, this is obviously an extreme case. Yeah. Warranted, you know, warranted action. This is clearly, um, without wishing to get into the detail, um, I think it's the profession has to find uh, has has to find a line between what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. There are grey areas. On the face of it, this is a long way from being a grey area type yeah. of case. So I think it's actually relatively straightforward. Um, it and it and it shows that the um, the profession has moved, has yeah. moved on, and the regulation of the profession has moved on. You know, obviously, this being the first such punishment for non-criminal sexual misconduct in the workplace, it possibly you could say that is overdue. Um, yeah, I'm sure that many, many equally bad things have happened and gone unpunished or less punished. Um, and so, I don't, I don't think this. I think this just says this underlines that the profession, the regulator, the profession can take proper action when it is clearly warranted. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of a shame that we're sort of... That's a pretty low bar, I think. That's a pretty low bar yes. to reach. Um, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I, I, I kind of don't think there's... Other than it being a pretty horrible case where you feel very bad for, for you know, for, for people impacted, uh, women or women impacted... It says that the profession can do the bare minimum for dealing with unpleasant situations. Um, I wouldn't say there's much more to say beyond that. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Um, yeah, I, I would encourage everyone who's curious to, to read <laughs> the actual stories. Um, it's, yeah, fascinating. Next up, so there was a, uh, an op-ed uh, in The Lawyer, I think it was today or yesterday, uh, yesterday, in fact, um, from Sarah Walker-Smith, uh, the CEO of Empire and Shakespeare Martinelle, um, 
about, you know, is it is it right that um, law firm leaders are not really speaking out on political issues? And um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's quite interesting. Um, so I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, especially from a PR point of view, where you can get in hot waters pretty quickly, <laughs> regardless of your political views. There's always going to be people that are unhappy. It's really, this is, I mean, this is a really interesting one. Firstly, I mean, I thought it was a really interesting piece that the lawyer ran and all credit to Sarah Walker-Smith for highlighting it and putting putting some pretty strong views out there saying that law firm leaders should speak out on politics and, you know, part of leadership is, is to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, going as far as saying if you have a strong view about policy and politics and not sharing it, it feels almost disingenuous to her. Um, I think all of that is, is is great in theory. I think in practice it can get sticky pretty quickly. Um, the bigger the firm, the bigger the more difficult it, it, it becomes in certain regards. So... Um, you have to appreciate that there will be diverse views on any issue within your own workforce, yeah. for starters. And the, C- the CEO, the managing partner, senior partner, sets the tone on those things, of course, but you cannot order people to share your views. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, so there can there, there is, the, the, in terms of your own people, yes, you want to, you need to show that you believe in something. Yeah. Um, and you may have to take a stand or may wish to take a stand on certain things, but not others. And you get into judgment calls. Uh, some of those things are relatively easy. Um, like, you know, it would be pretty comfortable for any law firm leader to say the government should not break the law, for yeah. example. Yeah, yeah. That would be pretty, you know, pretty pretty easy to do. Yeah. If it is something which is, um, I don't know, a different, a, a different type of, a different type of issue, or you know, who should be running the country? Who, you know, whether government is competent. Um, when you get into those sorts of things, it can be difficult, and because people will have a range of views. You know, the migrant issues around migrants, immigration, etc., is extremely difficult. I think, yeah. um, as a, as an issue. Um, because of the disparity, because of a wide range of views that people have. So there's your people, there's your clients, there are your clients. Um, is it an issue that impacts your clients? There are certainly areas where there's been a consensus view, somewhat kind of entrenched, somewhat possibly lazy in parts, around ESG issues being, you know, all social good, we should all pay lip service, etc. And the legal industry has sometimes come under fire, and rightly so in some cases for saying one thing but then doing another when it relates to client work. Yeah. Um, so there are issues around clients potentially and then there are international issues and cultural differences and geopolitics which can be hugely messy and they don't sync up and they are wildly inconsistent. And if you're a global firm wading into commenting on politics can be extremely hard. Um, you have to pick some global themes and talk about things like equality, things that you can talk about rights, you can talk about things like that, uh, you can talk about LGBT. There are still going to be tensions around the fact that you may have offices, you may operate in countries where it's illegal to be gay. Um, you may operate in countries where um, 
where it is autocratic, um, where people do not have the same rights and protections uh, or the same freedom of speech as we enjoy here or in the US. Um, and your people on the ground there, you know, most international firms are not dominated by experts who can fly in and fly out there from those countries. Yeah. So um, it can literally be dangerous to wade into politics yeah. in some of those countries. Yeah. And firms have a duty of care towards their employees. So um, I think it's absolutely right at a local level in certain respects to, that, that leaders should be genuine. When you're a, when you're a global business, it can be incredibly complicated and veer into dangerous territory to start commenting about politics if they do not, if they contradict uh, positions or legal situations um, on the ground in some of the places that you operate. Yeah, definitely. And I just think it's, you know, I mean, yeah, just from the client point of view, you know, if you're a global firm and, you know, you've got you're saying something about China and you've got a Chinese office and it's not even just about the people, but just the client, the, the clients there, you know, there's only so many things you can really comment on. Um, and as you said, I think it's quite limited. The bigger you are, the, the more it's limited. So yeah, China is a really good example actually, because um, it is, it is hard. Even the, but even the U S I mean, getting involved in presidential election politics, yeah, definitely. It, you know, because it, some firms, may have a lot of partners or staff who are supported in one way or the other, but you're not going to have 100% unity. And there's such, yeah. such even in even in the US or here, you can have really polarizing issues yeah. that may be best not gotten into. I don't, I don't, yeah. think, I don't I think making it an issue probably isn't, isn't helpful. So I kind of think that in practice, in theory... Yes, like other business leaders, law firm leaders should stand up and be counted on certain issues, and they should be perfectly allowed to have views, but it has to sync with the needs of the business, the impact on their people, um, the needs of their clients, and and also, like I said, genuinely the safety of their people in certain places. If you yeah. start commenting on issues in certain places, you know, China can, you know, has very strong security laws. Yeah. Um, uh, as do some other places, as do many other countries in the world. And these are big, important economies where law firms have, you know, hundreds or thousands of people. Yeah, it's high stakes. Next up, uh, we've got a story uh, that actually um, was in the tribunal this week and I think next week as well. Uh, so some people will be familiar with it. It's a kind of employment tribunal story. So Mara, uh, Maria even Rooney um, is uh, back in court um, around her uh, claims that she was discriminated against uh, because she was going through the menopause. Um, any ruling on this will be quite significant. It will set a precedent. Uh, the, the case has been going back and forth uh, in courts for a number of years now, where, um, you know, some judges have found that actually she couldn't claim discrimination based on disability because of her menopausal symptoms. And uh, now they, they're looking at that again. So um, it's fascinating. Uh, uh, Barrister Lynn Benton uh, is leading on the case. Uh, she's from Seven Bedford Row. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a pretty impressive case. I mean, I think um, 
we're seeing more and more of these types of menopause cases in the employment tribunals at the moment. Um, so, but this one's going to set this. This one's this like one's the big one. Th- this one is 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 good. Yeah, this one's going to set the precedent uh, for for others. So uh, everyone's kind of looking at it at the moment. It's been all over the news. Um, I don't know. Did you want to share any thoughts on that at all? Um, just to just to say kudos to the team doing this. You know, it's been a long running thing. It's going to set a very as the time says today in uh, or as um, uh, this week, I think this that um, Jonathan Ames wrote. You know, it should it should provide a significant common law steer for the future, um, and it's one of those cases that you know a lot of the law these days, a lot of a lot of cases are meaningful because of them because it's a big number involved, yeah, or a big company, yeah, but. You know, there is, there is less that actually speaks to a huge amount of individual people and universal experiences. And why well, I say universal, um, not so much for me, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but for for people who do have those symptoms, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know for male menopause is a thing, um, but uh, it, 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 the relative universality of, of uh, um, speaking to a lot of people, I think. It's a genuinely important case that has huge ramifications for, um, for 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 women and society. So um, we'll be tracking it with interest. For sure. Lastly, um, a nice story to, to end this episode with. Uh, so there was a uh, a bit of a story in the lawyer this week uh, about Lewis Silkin introducing a a, kind, a kindness code. Uh, across the firm where basically um, it allows people to kind of uh, go out and look after themselves or to help, help other people, not in a pro bono way, but kind of, you know, helping colleagues uh, on some work matters or having just no, catching not, up not, with them. Not or, helping, not helping matter, uh, not doing pro bono or assisting Yeah, but, sorry. Yeah. But uh, having but coffee. Having coffee yeah. yeah. And kind of, you know, just looking after yourself basically. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting in terms of kind of caring for people's work-life balance. I don't think I've ever heard of something like that before. I know some firms were like introducing, you know, during the pandemic, especially like, you know, a couple hours a day to kind of be flexible and do something different, you know. But this is quite a, an interesting way to put it, kindness code. And, you know, I don't know what you think uh, of I this. I think it's a really nice. It's, it's a, it's a, I think it's really nice. It's really a good thing that Lewis Silkin's got. Um, I think it's also quite nice because it's not cheap PR. They haven't done it and they've had it for quite a while. Yeah. Um, so sometimes sometimes a firm does something on the face of it good and then rushes out like a press release. Yeah. To, to, <laughs> look, look, aren't we nice people? Um, I really like the fact that, that Lewis Silkin have been doing this for several years and introduced it during the pandemic and have kept it and are saying that it's now a really important part of their culture, um, you know, to allow people to have you know, coffee with others, calling on neighbours or family, spending time with kids, etc. Um, and as... Um, as I say in the piece, uh, the managing partner, Joe Farmer, says, the amount of time recorded was less important than the permission it granted to people and broke the deadlock. Um, the code allowed it to become part of how you look after yourself and others. I think just think that's, that's, that's really nice and it's a genuine 
cultural differentiator that's not been used for cheap PR and has clearly made a difference to people in the firm. Yeah. And it's nice to see it recognised. Um, and I think, I think firms can learn a lot from that and hopefully it'd be something that maybe not in quite the same way but that other firms look to do to to give people that permission and I do think it's about giving people permission rather than you know worrying about how much time they might record against these things or whatever yeah 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 so it's a nice it's a nice initiative um yeah I'd be really keen to hear from people there um because I think across the profession for for a while now we've seen people kind of wanting more work-life balance and I think that allows some space for it so yeah it's positive all around um anyway that's the end of the episode uh thank you for joining me this week michael uh always appreciated um and uh yeah if you want to um you can find us on on uh spotify apple Podcasts, and google podcasts and we'll be back next week for another episode listening to council culture the business of law podcast brought to you by byfield Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and join us again next week where we'll be discussing some more of the biggest stories in the legal sector.